Hello, my name is Antonio Sanakopoulos and I'm an Associate Professor of Public International Law at the University of Oxford and a Fellow in Law at St. Anne's College in Oxford. And uh, today we're going to talk about United Nations Security Council sanctions. So um, to introduce the topic a little bit, um, obviously one of the main purposes of the United Nations is to take collective action to maintain international peace and security. And uh, the United Nations Security Council is the organ of the organization that has been given the power um, to impose sanctions under Article 41 of the UN Charter in order to respond to threats to the peace. Now, this is a very important tool um, that the United Nations has in order to maintain international peace and security, but for many, many years, this, this power was um, uh, underused. It, it lay completely dormant. Um, this is mainly because of the antagonism between the great powers in between 1945, the establishment of the United Nations, and 1990. During that time, almost 45 years, um, the Security Council only agreed to impose sanctions on, in two cases, um, in uh, the case of South Africa and the case of Southern Rhodesia, um, with respect to apartheid policies. Now, since 1990, however, there has been an explosion, true explosion, in sanctions practice. Um, and this is because um, there was newfound consensus within the Council, and um, the great tool um, that was available to it under Article 41 started being used in order to precisely maintain international peace and security. But that, of course, created some new problems. So now the problem was not the fact that uh, the Security Council wasn't acting. The problem was uh, rather that it may have been acting too much. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the sanctions practice of the Security Council and we're going to discuss the legal problems um, that, um, that this practice of the last, what, almost by now 25 years um, has uh, uh, brought about. So, how are we going to go about it? The, the first thing that um, I will need to talk about are some terminological issues, what the sanctions mean and so on and so forth. Um, but then um, I'm going to give you a um, sort of um, an overview of the development of sanctions practice over the last 25 years, um, uh, demonstrate what legal problems it creates, and then I'm going to talk about the law um, that regulates sanctions, the law that is binding on the United Nations and its Security Council, and what happens if, uh, for some reason, the Security Council violates that law, um, who determines it, and uh, what the consequences of that violation uh, will be. So to begin with, let's start with uh, terminology. Um, this might sound boring, but it's actually very important. Uh, because the title of the lecture, what I've been talking about so far, is sanctions. It's United Nations Security Council sanctions. But of course, nowhere in the Charter will you find the term sanctions. Um, in fact, what Article 41 talks about is measures not involving the use of armed force. The Security Council can impose measures not involving the use of armed force. So where does the sanctions term come from and why do we use it? Well, I suppose one reason is as a convenient shorthand, right? Because um, it's, it's easier to say sanctions than to say uh, measures not involving the use of armed force. Um, but the, the reason is probably a little bit deeper and, and merits some discussion. Um, 
traditionally, international law is a decentralized legal system. Um, in general international law, there are no centralized organs for law production, uh, law interpretation, um, law application, and law enforcement. Um, and traditionally, the sanctions in public international law have been decentralized sanctions. They were sanctions that states would take um, at their own decision, but also at their own risk. Um, and they were mainly war and reprisals. Um, 1945, the, um, the, the establishment of the United Nations and the adoption of the UN Charter was a game changer in this respect. Um, it was a complete turning point because what the, the, the Charter tried to do was to precisely partially centralize the sanctioning, the decentralized sanctioning power of the states. And it did that in two moves. One was to prohibit flat out a blanket prohibition of the use of armed force in Article 2.4 of the UN Charter and centralize the power to use force to the Security Council in Chapter 7 under Article 42. The second move was to partially do the same with the power of reprisals or what we today call countermeasures. So states can react to a violation of international law um, if they're injured by that violation by taking a countermeasure, violating international law in response. Um, but of course, they have to do so by themselves. So each one, every time it is injured. What uh, the Charter sought to do was to create a collective power um, in the Security Council to take such measures or to impose to the member states to take such measures collectively against other states. Um, and this is the power that we find in Article 41. So states can still take countermeasures, but now we have an organization which has an organ that can impose to all the member states to take the same measures in order to respond to a threat to the peace. Um, now, the problem here, of course, is that we call a sanction a response to an illegality. But under Article 41, the Security Council doesn't actually have to respond to an illegality, properly so-called. It is responding to a threat to the peace. Um, so you could say that Security Council sanctions under Article 40, 41 are not actually true sanctions. But there's another way to see it. And you can simply say, well, the Charter prohibits anyone from constituting a threat to the peace or from being a threat to the peace. And in that sense, Security Council sanctions under Article 41 are true sanctions. They're sanctioning the threat to the peace, which is a violation of international law. Any which way uh, you see it, the point is that these collective measures that are taken to respond to a threat to the peace are traditionally called sanctions, even though you don't find that term anywhere in the Charter. Now, um, let's see how these sanctions operate. Um, as we said, for the first 45 years, not much of sanctioning practice, only two instances, South Africa and Southern Rhodesia. After 1990, however, starting with Iraq and the invasion of Kuwait, um, there has been the explosion in sanctions practice. Um, but of course, at first, the Security Council itself in the United Nations didn't have any experience with the use of sanctions. So they found themselves with a very powerful tool that they hadn't used before properly. In the case of Iraq, for example, they, um, the United uh, Nations imposed a comprehensive sanctions regime. Effectively, it blocked all trade coming in and out of Iraq. Now, this caused very, very uh, serious problems. Of course, it was very, well, it was effective in one sense in that it blocked trade in and out of Iraq completely and starved Iraq um, for money and so on and so forth. But of course, this had very, very significant side effects 
uh, on the civilian population, which all of a sudden, you know, there was no money, um, no ability to buy medicines, educational materials, even food. Um, and civil society states, they started reacting to this, and even the Security Council itself started becoming conscious of this, and realizing that, wait, this is a bit too much of a blunt instrument, all of a sudden imposing this comprehensive sanctions regime um, and, and creating this problem. Um, so to address it, under pressure from civil society as well, and from states, and from um, um, other international organizations and non-government specialized agencies of the UN, the World Food Program and so on and so forth, um, the, the Security Council um, made two moves in order to address the issue. The first one was to introduce exemptions, um, or humanitarian exemptions as we call them. So yes, perhaps you can have some money for, to buy food, to buy medicine, certain materials are allowed to come in for uh, construction activity to continue, uh, but not to buy weapons, for example. So humanitarian exemptions was um, the first move with respect to Iraq. And then for later sanctions regimes, they were um, thinking perhaps we shouldn't be imposing these comprehensive sanctions because they cause more problems than they um, resolve. They cause problems to the civilian population. They don't necessarily um, hit um, the, the leadership of the state um, in order to induce them to stop being a threat to the peace. Um, so they started tweaking the sanctions. And one way to tweak the sanctions is to target them. And you can target them in two ways. And the Security Council um, has indeed, in many occasions, targeted sanctions in two different ways. One of them is to target specific goods that, um, if you're responding to a conflict, let's say, um, specific goods that fuel the conflict. And what I mean by that is it can be an, an arms embargo, so you starve them of arms, they can't fight anymore. Um, or it can be an oil embargo, which means they're starved for fuel and they cannot fight anymore because they can't move. But it could also be something like diamonds or even timber in certain uh, circumstances. And that's because these are also fueling the conflicts. If your main trade is in diamonds or timber, then starving you of that trade will turn off the tap uh, of the money flowing into the conflict and perhaps help um, to kill it off. Um, but another way, um, again, this is a, a relatively blunt tool, right? Because you're, you're cutting off money going into the economy, which may, again, hurt the civilian population. So you have to think again about exemptions and so on and so forth. Um, the other way you can target the sanctions is targeting di directly the leadership. Um, and so this is when the Security Council started imposing sanctions not on states specifically, but on state leaderships and identifying the people who were uh, heading the state and trying to impose asset freezes on them, uh, travel bans so they can move around freely, arms embargoes on them specifically, and so on and so forth. Um, now, a defining move came towards um, the end of um, the last century. Um, and that defining move was, or the beginning of this century, let's say, after 9-11. After and that defining move was that um, at that time, for the first time, sanctions were disengaged from being connected to the leadership of a state. So even though the Security Council was targeting individuals, these individuals were not necessarily connected to a state. Um, this is how the 1267 sanctions regime um, developed. Um, this was the sanctions regime originally targeting um, the Taliban, which was the leadership of Afghanistan. It was established in 1999, the 1267 sanctions regime. Um, as well as 
Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, and anyone associated with either the Taliban, Osama bin Laden, or Al-Qaeda. Um, but of course, after 2001, the Taliban stopped being um, the leadership, the government of, of Afghanistan. And at the same time, Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden were never the leadership of Afghanistan. And yet, um, the Security Council had created a list of individuals who were associated with the Taliban, Osama bin Laden, or um, Al-Qaeda, which um, were subjected to acid freezes, um, uh, arms embargoes, and um, travel bans. So here, we have the Security Council from targeting states to targeting individuals who are leading states to simply targeting individuals that somehow are connected to what is considered a threat to the peace, international terrorism, Al-Qaeda, Taliban. Now, um, this brings about a host of problems. And from what I've said, you will have realized that there are problems with this very powerful tool that are sanctions. They may be, uh, sanctions may end up violating human rights, whether they're uh, imposed against the state or against the leadership of a state or against individuals who have nothing to do with the state or nothing directly to do with the state. Um, what violations? Anything you can think of from um, uh, the obligation not to use starvation as a weapon, if you put a state under comprehensive sanctions, to respect the right to life, to respect um, the, um, the prohibition of torture and inhuman or degrading um, um, treatment. Obviously, if you're starved for food and medicine and you can't go to school, that can be considered inhuman and degrading treatment. Two, um, um, things like uh, what we have in targeted sanctions, which is um, all of a sudden an individual is found, um, is, uh, doesn't have any access to their funds anymore. They cannot draw money out of the bank. Um, they cannot um, travel freely. Um, and of course, they have another problem, which is they cannot challenge um, the situation that they're in. Usually, if under domestic law, if you're put um, under such um, uh, restrictive measures, you can go to a court and challenge these measures by saying, um, I, shouldn't be, I shouldn't be targeted, I have nothing to do with this, or um, this is disproportionate, or any argument like this. And then the domestic court will seek to protect your rights. But of course, when the Security Council imposes that measure on you, there's very little you can do um, to protect your rights, because you can't go knocking at the door of the Security Council and say, hello, can you just take me off the sanctions list? Um, they'll probably just say no. Um, also, you probably don't know why you're on the sanctions list. But um, we're going to um, come back to that later. This is a quick overview to show you um, what kind of legal problems the, the sanctions practice of the Security Council uh, may create. And what we're going to do immediately now is to move on to discuss how to deal with these legal problems. So the Security Council may, in imposing sanctions, violate international law. So what happens then? Um, what is the law that is binding on the United Nations? Let's start discussing this a little bit. The United Nations is an international organization and indeed a person in international law. The um, International Court of Justice has to, uh, told us so from uh, the very beginning of the life of the UN in the reparations advisory opinion. And um, what that means is obviously that the UN as an international person has rights under international law but this must mean that it also has certain obligations under international law. Now, where do these obligations come from? Well, obviously, they do come from the Charter, and the Charter does impose obligations on the UN on a number of issues. With respect to sanctions, what 
po could possibly be the obligations that are incumbent upon the UN and thus the Security Council when acting um, in that uh, capacity. Well, the first one is um, right there in the middle of the Charter, and that is Article 39, which is that the Security Council can impose sanctions under Article 41 when it determines that there is a threat to the peace. Um, a breach of the peace or an act of aggression, but of course, let's stick to threat to the peace because in practice, that's um, what opens the door of Chapter 7, and that's what the Security Council uses. Um, now, that is um, an obligation, though some people disagree. Um, I believe that this is a true obligation for the Security Council to determine a threat to the peace. Yes, it has very significant discretion in determining what is a threat to the peace, and the concept has developed um, through the practice of the Security Council. It's no longer just an army marching over borders. It can be refugee flows. Um, it can be an internal conflict with grave violations of human rights. It can even be AIDS, the Security Council has told us. And that's all fine. But there must be a limit to what can be considered a threat to the peace. Um, and so this outer limit is, the, uh, the, is where the obligation of the Security Council begins. So the Security Council cannot determine that anything is a threat to the peace. There, it has to have some reasonable relationship um, with the term. And who will confirm whether it does? Well, the states will confirm that it does. So the states have accepted in practice that um, certain determinations of the Security Council, which seemed um, a bit questionable in certain circumstances, um, were fine because the states were accepting them. But in other circumstances, um, they have reacted. Um, one such situation was when the Security Council um, uh, exempted uh, UN peacekeepers uh, from the jurisdiction of the ICC. Uh, now, that was a bit of a problem. The Security Council did that for one year, um, did it for another year, uh, but then it had to stop. And that was in part because of the reaction of the state saying, well, what's the threat to the peace here? You must be responding to a threat to the peace. And how is it a threat to the peace for peacekeepers to be subjected to um, the jurisdiction of an international criminal court? Um, so that is one example where the Security Council may go too far. Another obligation of the Security Council is, of course, to um, take proportionate measures to the threat that it is countering. Now, that you won't find written in the Charter, but of course, it is implicit that whenever you take a measure to respond to a particular threat, there must be some reasonable relationship of proportionality between the measure and the threat you're seeking to address. And indeed, if you look at discussions even within the Security Council, you'll find even permanent members discussing whether a particular reaction to a threat to the peace is necessary, uh, would it be too much, or are we going far enough, or are we going too far? So the, the, the Council has um, great discretion in determining when to act and also in determining what measures to take, but there is an outer limit. And if the Security Council oversteps that outer limit, then it violates an obligation of the United Nations. Um, and other than the Charter, there are more obligations in the Charter, and we don't have to go through all of them, but you get the idea. But other than the Charter, there, is also, there are also obligations that are incumbent on the United Nations under customary international law, because, of course, the UN is an international legal person, and so is bound by customary law like any other international legal person is. Um, and the main obligations that you could think in this, in this circumstance would be human rights obligations. We've already seen how sanctions may clash with certain um, human rights. And uh, um, so these are the obligations that are incumbent on the United Nations and thus on the Security Council when it is acting. So when the Security Council passes a resolution 
um, that violates one of these obligations, um, the act is attributable to the United Nations. The Security Council is an organ of the United Nations, and thus anything that the Security Council does, the United Nations does, and at the same time may violate an obligation that is incumbent on the United Nations. And if these two things happen, then the United Nations has perpetrated an internationally wrongful act for which, if there is no circumstance precluding wrongfulness, it will become responsible under international law. Um, there's one difficulty here, um, and that is what happens when the Security Council passes a resolution um, which on its face doesn't violate any obligations of the UN, but then the states have to implement that obligation, and in so doing, it is state organs that violate obligations which are incumbent both on the state and um, on uh, the UN, like for example, a human rights obligation. Take the example of targeted sanctions that I gave earlier, and let's imagine that the Security Council says um, all states must freeze the assets of Mr. X, because Mr. X um, is associated, we think, is associated with Al-Qaeda. Fine. So that means that all the states have to do this. Um, so state A uh, passes a domestic implementing act, let's say it takes a uh, an administrative decision, or in the UK you take an, you, it would be an ordering council under the UN Act. Um, every state has its own domestic law, but through this domestic law it would have to um, implement the sanction. And Mr. X's assets are now frozen, and he has no recourse, he cannot challenge that. Um, so his right of access to a court, or his right to an effective remedy, which is a right under customary international law, can be considered as have been, having been violated. Who has perpetrated this violation? Who is the act attributable to? The assets were frozen by organs of the state. And so under international law, that would be an act of the state. The act of an organ of the state is attributable to that state. But at the same time, the organ of the state acted in that way because it was bound to do so by a Security Council resolution under Chapter 7, which is binding on all member states under Article 25 of the UN Charter. So, yes, it is a state organ that is acting, but that state organ is effectively controlled normatively through the power of law by the Security Council, by the United Nations. And the argument there would be that the act may be attributable to the state because it's a state organ that's, act that's acting, but at the same time can be attributed to the UN because even though it's not a UN organ that is acting, it's a UN agent that is acting. That state organ is acting as an agent of the UN, or at the very least, the UN normatively controls that organ, and so the act of the organ is attributable to the UN. In, in all these cases, if we have attribution of conduct to the UN, and if that conduct may be in violation or is in violation of an international obligation of the UN, the UN has become responsible. So what happens then? Well, first of all, who decides? Who will decide whether it's all good and well. I've been sitting here and telling you, oh, the UN may violate international law and so on and so forth. But it can't be just because I say so, right? Somebody has to determine that this has happened. So who will it be that can determine whether um, the UN has become responsible in international law because of the imposition of sanctions? Well, the, the, the first thought of a lawyer um, would be to say, well, there must be a court, right? There must be a court to determine that the UN um, acted wrongly. But of course there isn't. And that's because, first of all, uh, the UN cannot be a party to a contentious case before its own principal judicial organ, the International Court of Justice. The International Court of Justice is open only to states for contentious cases. 
Um, of course, the question could be the subject of an advisory opinion, but that wouldn't be binding. Formally, an advisory opinion is not binding. So it cannot determine with finality that the UN has acted in a particular, um, in, a, in a wrongful manner. And of course, there is no other court um, in any state or any other international court that has any jurisdiction over the UN. So there is no court to determine um, whether the UN has violated international law. So who does? Well, the answer is simply whoever determines a violation of international law in general international law, and that is the states in a decentralized manner. Um, this may sound a bit anarchic, but we must remember that when a state determines that the UN has violated international law, it does so, first of all, at its own risk. So it may be wrong, and then it will have to face the consequences. But the other thing is, if, it, if one state does it alone, that's not going to carry too much weight. So what should happen is to have many states making the same determination in a decentralized manner. And that will give you some certainty that hmm, there may be a problem here. The UN might have indeed violated international law if we have so many states um, reacting to what the UN is doing um, in imposing certain sanctions. So this is the way to determine um, whether the UN has acted uh, wrongfully. But then what are the consequences of uh, the wrongful act and that determination? What happens then? Well, um, the consequences uh, are that the UN must, if it is determined that it has perpetrated a wrongful act, it must seize the wrongful act um, and perhaps offer reparation, um, most likely in the, in the form of juridical restitution. What that means simply is that the UN must withdraw the sanctions decision, the offending decision, um, the offending resolution that creates the problem. Um, but what happens if the UN is not willing to do that? How can states um, sort of react and indicate to it that it must um, implement its responsibility? Um, almost the only way out for states is to disobey the Security Council in such circumstances. Um, and again, that sounds scary. but. Um, there is a way to justify this in international law in very, very specific circumstances. And one way to justify it is to say that this is a countermeasure. If a state disobeys the Security Council, uh, um, which has passed a Chapter 7 resolution which is binding, it violates international law. It quite clearly violates Article 25 of the UN Charter, which says you, states accept uh, to uh, carry out the decisions of the Security Council. Um, but this violation can be justified um, under international law uh, as a countermeasure, as a response to a wrongful act that has injured the state. Um, now, this is because when the UN, when the Security Council violates the UN Charter, all member states of the UN are affected. When organs of the UN interpret the Charter in a particular way that is questionable, if states don't react, then that, what looked at first as a questionable interpretation, will all of a sudden become the new law. And if you want to confirm this, you, all you have to do is look at uh, Article 27, Paragraph 3 of the UN Charter on voting in the Security Council, where it says that you need the ni nine affirmative votes, um, including the concurring votes of all the permanent members. A concurring vote to an affirmative vote is a yes. Uh, so that means that if a permanent member of the Security Council doesn't vote, doesn't vote yes, um, the resolution fails. Uh, but of course that's not the way things work, because the Charter has been interpreted 
or that particular provision of the Charter has been interpreted to allow abstentions not to block a decision. What that means is when a permanent member does not vote yes, but, that, but does not vote no either, simply abstains, that is not counted as an affirmative vote, obviously, but does not block the decision, even though it's not a concurring vote. So, you see, this came out of the practice of the Security Council itself, and states accepted it. And if they do accept it, then it becomes the new law. So when the, um, the Security Council interprets threat to the peace in a particular way, and states accept it, then from then on, it becomes, let's say, um, part of the practice of the organization that a particular thing is considered a threat to the peace. If states wish to stop this type of interpretation, they must react. Um, so this shows you that a violation of the Charter affects each and every member state of the UN, which means each and every member state of the UN can turn around and respond to this. Um, it can be considered an injured state, and so it may take countermeasures against the organization. If we go to customary international law, um, then it would depend on what type of obligation the UN is violating. Uh, but if it's a human rights obligation, and especially um, an obligation that is owed erga omnes to the international community as a whole, then you can make the argument that, in fact, all states, not just member states of the UN, can respond to the violation of international law through a countermeasure. So, disobedience, disobeying a particular order of the Security Council that you think is illegal, can be qualified, characterized legally, as a countermeasure, as a response to a, a wrongful, to a previous wrongful act by the United Nations through the Security Council in the imposition of sanctions. And so the wrongfulness of that disobedience is precluded. Now, um, this is all a very theoretical construction and, and you may think, well, yes, but isn't that too complicated? Does it really work in practice? Well, we actually have examples from practice and that's um, what um, I want to uh, basically finish with to give you some examples where states have reacted, not one or two states, but groups of states, have reacted to um, actions of the Security Council in the imposition of sanctions that they considered questionable or in violation of international law. Um, one um, such important example, perhaps the first one that we have at this scale, is the reaction of what was then the Organization of African Unity and what is today the African Union to the Libyan sanctions. Um, as we know, um, after the Lockerbie incident, um, the Security Council imposed sanctions on Libya in 1992. Um, Libya, uh, pushed by the African Union, what was then the OAU, the Organization of African Unity, um, and other international uh, organizations, um, the Organization of the Islamic Conference, which is now the Organization uh, for Islamic Cooperation, and they were pushed to negotiate, to find a way to resolve. They were uh, being pushed to um, resolve the dispute um, to find a way to get the Security Council to remove the sanctions. And um, um, Libya started wishing to negotiate, but the Security Council was a bit recalcitrant. Um, and it did not want to consider the options offered by Libya and international organizations trying to help Libya in this situation. Um, which at some point became too much. So the sanctions were in place for about six years. Um, and at that point, the Organization of African Unity, as it was at the time, turned around and said, well, we've had pretty much enough. Now, you've put Libya uh, under sanctions for six years, but Libya, of course, is willing to negotiate, and you're not taking Libya seriously. In fact, we don't think that Libya is a threat to the peace anymore. Um, 
you are not responding to a threat to the peace anymore. And uh, not only that, but the sanctions that you have imposed, including a travel ban, um, violate um, uh, the right to freedom of religion uh, because it blocks um, uh, the power, the, the ability of Libyan people uh, to go to the Holy Land and so on and so forth. And so the Organization of African Unity decided at, in August 1998 that from September 1998 it would stop complying with the sanctions of the Security Council. Now, here we're talking about 43 states, um, sorry, 53 states. We're talking about 53 states um, stopping uh, compliance with sanctions. We're talking about what was at the time almost one-third of the membership of the organization. Here you have a problem. First of all, um, the, um, the, the member states of the OAU can say, we're doing this because we're responding to a wrongful act. This is n the sanctions do not respond to a threat to the peace anymore. And so we know we're violating the charter, but we are justified in doing that because the UN Security Council is also violating the charter. Um, but at the same time, the Security Council is faced with a very, very significant threat because there is a synergetic relationship, a cooperative relationship between the UN and the states. The states need the UN um, in order to have effective collective action, but at the same time the UN needs the states because otherwise it doesn't have any operational capacity. Um, it, who is going to impose the sanctions? So it needs to keep the states complying with the sanctions. Um, as you can imagine, um, very quickly a solution was found so that no, no serious disobedience would take place. Um, and um, this is how we had the Lockerbie trials in um, a Scottish tribunal sitting in The Hague um, and uh, deciding on the guilt of particular or innocence of particular individuals that were implicated in the Lockerbie affair. So that is one example. But what has been happening um, effectively uh, for the last almost 15 years with respect to uh, targeted individual sanctions is also um, very indicative of this threat and actual disobedience as a reaction, as a countermeasure to um, uh, Security Council alleged or perceived violations of international law. I gave the example earlier of Mr. X uh, being uh, frozen out of his assets, being told, look, you, can, you have no access to your money anymore, you cannot travel, and so on and so forth. Um, um, if Mr. X asks, well, what is the reason for you, State A, blocking access to my money, State A can turn around and say, well, the UN told me that I must do so, and uh, it's an international obligation for me to do so. And Mr. X would say, okay, so how can I um, get out of this? How can I, can I go to the United Nations and ask, and ask it to um, uh, remove me from the list? Well, in the first iterations of the sanctions regime, you couldn't do that. Um, an individual could not just go knocking to the Security Council and say, hello, I'm Mr. X, can you please remove me from the list? You weren't even visible for the Security Council. Now this, of course, was a problem because this meant that the only way you could ask to be removed from the list would be to go to your state of residence or your state of nationality and ask your state of nationality to intervene. But of course, here you can be told no on many levels. First of all, your state of residence or nationality may tell you, well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to bother the Security Council with this. Um, but even if they do take up your claim and go to the Security Council, they may tell the Security Council, well, you've, you know, you've listed Mr. X. Um, why have you listed Mr. X? Oh, I'm sorry, we cannot tell you. 
This is confidential. Oh, okay. Can you please remove Mr. X from the list? No, sorry, we cannot do that. And that would be the end of it. So basically, you had no way to challenge this. Now, if we're talking about restrictive measures that are temporary in nature, that may be okay um, for, because it's preventive, it's a preventive measure. But of course, if these sanctions extend in time, then this starts becoming a problem. <coughs> um, and it is a particular problem for Mr. X because he cannot do anything. Um, so Mr. X and the various Mr. X's that were found listed in Security Council um, lists would go to domestic courts. And at first the domestic courts would throw out the cases. You cannot go to the domestic court and say, I would like to challenge this resolution of the Security Council. Because the court will tell you, well, you cannot do that because I don't have jurisdiction over the United Nations. I cannot decide on uh, a resolution of the Security Council. Um, in order to overcome this hurdle, what Mr. X and his clever lawyers would do would be to say, well, I'm not attacking the resolution of the Security Council. I'm attacking the domestic implementing measure. I am attacking the administrative act, which is your act, State A, uh, before the courts of your, before your courts, before the courts of State A. And so I find that this act is in violation of my human rights and it should be struck down. Now, at first, um, courts would see through this and they would say, well, yes, but if you ask us to review act, the act, um, that act is conditioned by a Security Council resolution. It merely translates a Security Council resolution into domestic law. And so if I review the act, I am implicitly or indirectly reviewing the resolution as well. Um, and that is, of course, correct. And so they would keep throwing out the cases, but as the years went by and as states saw, and especially state courts, uh, saw that the Security Council had no intention of um, removing the sanctions, this wasn't really preventive, this was dragging on in time and so on and so forth, and individual rights were at risk, the, the courts took a very, started taking a very, very radical step. And that is to disengage the domestic act from the international act. This is what happened in the Cadi case. And to say, well, I know this is implementing a Security Council resolution, but it is still an act of the state or of the a particular international organization in the case of the EU, which we can treat as a state for, these, for, for our purposes here, there's still an act of a state that must be reviewed for compliance with the law of the state. Um, and that is what happened in the Cadi case, that is what happened in the Ahmed case before the UK Supreme Court and in a number of other cases. Um, and the domestic court would do the following. It would say, I will review the domestic act for compliance with domestic law. The domestic act that freezes Mr. X's money is not in compliance with domestic uh, law, with domestic indeed constitutional law, um, in the sense that it violates certain fundamental human rights that are constitutionally protected in one way or another, whether you call it um, fundamental rights under UK law, or you call it fundamental rights under primary EU law, it doesn't matter. What matters is its constitutional rank. And so I will strike down the domestic implementing measure. But of course, when that happens, the state has a problem because it is now forced to either disobey its own court, which it will almost never do, or to disobey the Security Council. Because of course, if Mr. X must have access to his money under the law of state A, then state A is violating its obligation to block access uh, of Mr. X to his money 
under Article 25 of the UN Charter and under the Security Council Resolution. So you see the predicament here. Now, um, two moves are important in this scenario. One is the courts are, of course, very familiar with or they're very cognizant of the fact that they are pushing the state to disobey the Security Council. Um, what is their justification for it? Or what is the way out that they offer? Well, what they do is they go into um, a particular argument called the Zolangia argument. This is called the Zolangia argument, but it was first made by the German Federal Constitutional Court in uh, uh, cases brought before it, where effectively it reviewed um, the European Union, well, the uh, European Economic Community as it was at the time. Basically, what it said was as follows um, The EU passes particular acts which we cannot review. However, um, they can only be reviewed by EU courts, but EU courts do not review these acts for compliance with human rights. For as long as, that is what Zolange means, the EU does not review its acts for compliance with human rights, me, the, Feder the German Federal Constitutional Court, will review these acts for compliance with German constitutional rights. And what do you know? Very quickly, the EU introduced review of EU acts um, for uh, compliance with fundamental rights. And as soon as the German Federal Constitutional Court saw that, um, said, that's fine. Since now you are offering equivalent protection, I will no longer review EU acts for compliance with German constitutional rights. Now, the EU reviews its own acts for compliance with human rights. So that's fine. I defer to the EU. This is effectively what the courts um, are doing with the Security Council in these circumstances. They say the only reason that I'm accepting this argument, they say it implicitly, but it's quite clear. Um, if you read it, the only reason that I'm accepting this argument is because there is no review at UN level. And as long as there is no review at UN level, I will keep reviewing these acts for compliance with fundamental rights. This is a development over almost um, a decade. And throughout this decade, each time the pressure has been mounting, so each time there would be challenges in domestic courts, the UN Security Council will, would see these challenges and effectively, in a way, offer reparation, try to improve the regime so as to earn the deference of the domestic courts. Um, how did it do that? At first, it introduced humanitarian exemptions. It said, well, we can't block all your money. You must have some money to buy food, to buy legal services, lawyers need to be paid, and so on and so forth. Um, that was the first move. That wasn't enough. States kept pushing through their domestic courts. Then the Security Council introduced um, um, what is called the focal point. Um, and the focal point is um, effectively a, um, a transceiver where you can actually personally go to the Security Council. You do not have to go through your state of residence or nationality and ask the Security Council to delist you. That's still problematic because the Security Council may just say no for no reason. Um, the pressure kept mounting. So in the 1267 regime, the Security Council uh, passed Resolution 1904 and then Resolution 1989, whereby it created and then refined the office of the Ombudsperson. Now, this is a very important development because the office of the Ombudsperson is an independent and impartial third party with, to which you, as a listed person, can go and apply to be removed from the sanctions list. And the ombudsperson is going to gather all the information. Um, it's going to listen to you. Um, 
to transmit uh, the reasons for your listening to you, among other things, and so on and so forth, but also talk to the states, talk to the Security Council, find out why you've been listed, and we'll then prepare a recommendation to the Security Council to either um, maintain you on the list or to remove you from the list. Um, at first, this was merely recommendatory. It is, after all, called a recommendation. But domestic courts kept pushing. And so the Security Council, in fact, made it quasi-obligatory to comply with the ombudsperson's uh, recommendation. How did they do that? They said, well, no longer do we have to have consensus to remove someone from the list. We now have to establish consensus to reject the recommendation of the ombudsperson to um, remove someone from the list. So if the ombudsperson says this person should be removed, we must all agree not to remove that person. We must all agree not to accept the recommendation of the ombudsperson. If we don't all agree not to accept it, then it's considered accepted and the person's removed from the list. So you see how the regime, from a point where you couldn't do anything, has evolved uh, to a point where you can actually go to an independent and impartial third party, put your case to them, and have them ha make a recommendation to the Security Council, which uh, in practice is binding, even though Technically, there are um, ways to avoid complying with the recommendation. This has come through this pressure of the domestic courts, um, which effectively threatened, if not actually imposed, massive disobedience on states. If we think about the courts um, that have made decisions um, that effectively lead to disobedience of the Security Council, um, one of them is the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union, which effectively obliges 28 member states of the UN not to comply with sanctions. And the other um, has been the European Court of Human Rights, which obliges 47 states, so about a quarter of the UN membership, not to comply with Security Council sanctions. So to conclude, effectively what we have here is the following. First of all, it is the reaction of states to the Security Council that can bring about change and that can avoid the practice, certain questionable practice of the Security Council um, of becoming an accepted practice. So it is the reaction of states in a decentralized manner, but when more than one of them agree, um, that keeps the Security Council in check and makes sure, make sure that it complies with public international law. And the reaction or the standard way of reaction is disobedience. And that dis but that disobedience can be allowed under international law if it is uh, in response to a violation on the part of the United Nations of its own obligations in sanctions practice. And so this basically concludes um, the discussion of United Nations Security Council sanctions. Um, just a quick overview of what we said, so to, take, to give you the main points again. In the last 25 years, we've had an explosion in sanctions practice. This has created problems, indeed legal problems, um, uh, because of the lack of experience with that tool. And as we gain experience, we refine the sanctions and we avoid most of these problems. But it is states in their decentralized reactions that help the Security Council realize problems like that and indeed help to push the Security Council to deal with these problems if the Security Council does not seem particularly inclined to do so. And um, the legal um, analysis behind these two moves 
is on the one hand that the United Nations and thus also the Security Council as its organ is bound by international law, so it must comply with certain international law norms. And the states, um, if, this, if the United Nations is seen to violate international law, the states are the only ones who can keep it in check, the only ones who can react and effectively force it to comply uh, with international law by even, uh, in certain circumstances, disobeying.